Let's turn to Revelation 13. In chapter 12, we saw the dragon. That was the chief character of chapter 12. And we saw how the dragon was regularly foiled in his attempts. We saw that the dragon tried to devour the Christ child. The dragon was thrown down from heaven where he had accused the saints. And then we see at the end of chapter 12 that on the earth he is in hot pursuit. He was in hot pursuit of Israel, but he was foiled in his pursuits. And then at the end it says that he went off to make war against the offspring of the woman, which last week I said was the church. More specifically, given the time of this, it would be better to say those are the tribulation saints. Jared reminded me of that last week, and I wanted to make sure to note that. But the point of all that being, we find in chapter 12, a great sign in heaven, which lays out this great animosity between the dragon and Christ. We saw the war in heaven that saw the defeat of the dragon, and then we saw the pursuit on the earth. And young people, I hope that you figured out or asked your mom and dad what that whole maze was on the front of your bulletin last week. That was Pac-Man. And in the game of Pac-Man, all the little ghosts pursue Pac-Man. And that was to give us a little bit of an image, something to hold on to and to latch on to, that the fact that the devil, Satan, is on the pursuit on the earth. And that's what we saw at the close of chapter 12. So today, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider chapter 13, the rise of Satan's champion. So let's pray together and ask for God to use this passage in our hearts. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we would not be simply satisfied to understand what it says, but to understand how we may keep it and apply it. Because there is blessing to those who read this book. There is blessing to those who keep what it says. And we must not short-circuit the blessing that you hold forth to us by simply wanting to understand what it says, but not seeking to apply what it says to our hearts and lives. Give me the wisdom I need to present, and may you bring fruit in all of our lives as we understand what it says and are led to understand what we ought to do because of it. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In sports, teams try to gain an advantage over their opponents. Now, sometimes they do so through illegal means. For example, they might steal the playbook of the opposing team. That's not fair. Some people do it. But other teams try to gain the edge on their opponent by studying their opponents, perhaps watching a lot of tape. I remember listening to the basketball superstar Michael Jordan talk about someone who was going to guard him. Jordan talked about that player, and he talked about his feet And whether or not that person would be balanced on his toes or if that person would be flat-footed. And based on what he knew about the player, he would determine his move. Whether he would fake to freeze the player in midair or he would do a hard crossover to move past that defender. 
And what we could find from a superstar like him is that he knew his opponent so well that he knew how to shake loose of him in order to get the shot that he wanted. Well, as we turn to Revelation 13, it's in the same tactical vein of trying to gain an advantage, but it's to a far greater degree. In the previous chapter, chapter 13, Satan, the dragon, fails in his schemes. He tried tried to destroy Jesus Christ. He failed. He tried to destroy the nation of Israel, and he will fail. Then he will try to destroy the offspring of Israel. Those are the tribulation saints. It says that he is going to make war on those saints. And that's kind of where we ended the chapter. Chapter 12 closes with Satan fuming because he couldn't touch Israel. He tried to pour water out of his mouth in order to sweep them away in the flood, but God rescued Israel by causing the earth to open up and swallow the water. So the dragon is now furious. He went off, and as the close of verse 17 in the ESV, many other translations in the English language, it's chapter 13, verse 1, it said that he stood on the sand of the sea. So why did he stand on the shore? Well, we're going to see in a moment in chapter 13, but I want you to recall what we saw in chapter 10. Remember in Revelation chapter 10 that a mighty angel descends from heaven and he stands on the land and on the sea. And in doing so, He is the representative of Jesus Christ who lays claim to the earth. And he declared then that there would be no more delay. In the days of the seventh trumpet, God's kingdom would come to earth. That was the first and mighty stand that we see. Now we turn to chapter 13. The dragon stands on the shore. So I want you to notice this is a standoff as the Philistines with their champion Goliath stood opposite the Israelites in 1 Samuel 17. This is epic. Now, what we find at the beginning of 13 is how the dragon is going to make war on those tribulation saints. And he will find out that he will not do so personally. He is going to summon someone to do it for him. And this chapter is about those who are going to aid the dragon in his evil plots. The chapter is divided into two simple parts. You see in verse 1 that a beast rises out of the sea. You look down at verse 11, it says that there's a beast rising out of the earth. And this passage then focuses on the two beasts, one from the sea and the second from the earth. The first we know to be the Antichrist, the second to be the false prophet. As we know later on in the book, when these are defeated, it is referred to as the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. So this is what we find in, when it comes to these prominent characters, these prominent evil forces. We have an unholy trinity, the dragon, which is Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. These are unified individuals, but they are distinct in their persons. Today, we're going to focus on the first half, which concerns Satan's champion, the Antichrist. 
Now, as you go through chapter 13 and you listen to Brother Jared read it, you didn't notice that he used the word antichrist because it doesn't appear in this chapter. It appears in 1 John 2.18 where it says the antichrist is coming. And of course, there have been many through the years who oppose Christ and therefore would rightly be known as antichrist. But the figure revealed here is that unique figure who will one day oppose Christ. And as we go through chapter 13, we're going to see how he mirrors the true Messiah. He is truly the anti-Christ. Now, what we have to realize before we go on is something that it would be very easy for us to glaze over. How is it that we know about the Antichrist of the future? Isn't it a foolish thing for people to be dogmatic about the future? If you were to say dogmatically who will win the election on Tuesday, that would be foolish because you and I don't have that kind of knowledge. We don't have that kind of power to control things so that they happen. But we know that the Antichrist will come because John tells us. How did John know? Well, Jesus Christ revealed this future Antichrist. Look at verse 1. And I saw a beast. Who showed that to him? Jesus Christ. Verse 2. The beast which I saw. We've read the fact that John saw this and he saw that many times, but we have to see that Jesus Christ is revealing to John the means that Satan will use to make war on the saints. To say it another way, Christ reveals the enemy's plan beforehand. And that very fact needs to show us and affirm to our hearts that Christ is in complete control of everything that is happening in the final days. He knows about the evil. He knows about the rise of this one. And he's not concerned about it. So we must not be concerned about it either. He knows what will come. And he knows that it is not going to ruin his plan or thwart his promises. So with that frame of reference... Let's consider two points from verses 1 through 4 today. First, we'll consider that Christ reveals the identity of the beast. Christ reveals the identity of the beast. Look at verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And while there isn't a cross-reference, perhaps in your Bible, a good cross-reference would be back to chapter 11, verse 7, where it talks about the beast that comes out of the abyss and the same that happens in 17.8. The abyss is a place where beings are bound. There's a beast who rises out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. So John saw a beast rising from the sea. The two things I want you to know and recognize about this beast is first that the beast is dragon-like. If you recall the description of the dragon in chapter 12, you'll see that it closely resembles this description in chapter 13. So look back at chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads, seven diadems. So you notice that the heads and the horns are the same. Same number. 
However, the diadems and the names are different. That is to show us this. The beast is united to the dragon, but it it has a separate role from the dragon. They're similar, but they are different. What we do see in just the headings of these chapters is that the first is a dragon, the second is a beast. And both of those beings are monstrous. You know, and we may think because we're familiar with the story, the beauty and the beast, that beasts aren't that bad. You know from the story Beauty and the Beast that a proud prince rudely denies shelter to a woman who ends up being an enchantress who punishes the prince by turning him into a hideous beast. And we've read that story before, and we know how the beast is redeemed through the kindness of a beautiful girl. And we might then think that beasts, they're not that bad. I mean, you look at the picture on the kid's bulletin, and you think, that beast looks kind of nice. We're not really supposed to think that way about beasts. They are ferocious characters. And the beast of this chapter is that kind of person. The Antichrist is ferocious, and he is in league with Satan. He is like the devil. Secondly, the beast is animal-like. Look at verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, this composite image may picture its speed, its power, and its roar. But what this passage must certainly show us, what it must remind us of, is the beasts of the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, we saw a successive uh, list of kings who were described as animals. Daniel chapter 7 describes the kingdom of Babylon as a lion the kingdom of Medo-Persia as a bear, and the kingdom of Greece as a leopard. Then you remember from Daniel 7 that there was a fourth beast who was altogether different and particularly ferocious. And we remember as we studied that passage that Daniel was very curious about that fourth beast and about its ten horns and about a little horn. And I want to turn to Daniel at this time and read, because this would have been the context that John would have had, and perhaps his readers would have had, as they heard John talk about the beast that came up from the sea with its heads and its horns. This is Daniel chapter 7, begin my reading in verse 19. Daniel said, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns. You get to Revelation 13 and you wonder, how many horns were there? There were ten horns. There are ten horns here about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. 
As I looked, the horn made war with the saints. Now that is something that makes me remember what it said in chapter 12. That the dragon would go off to make war on the offspring of the woman. And then it will come up again, chapter 13, verse 7. That they'll make war on the saints. So, Daniel looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there'll be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns... So here's the explanation. Out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. Again, we have ten horns upon this beast. And another shall rise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And we've seen that time designation again and again in the book of Revelation. The court shall sit in judgment. His dominion, that one, the little horn, will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion of the greatness of kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey. So this is the background information for what we read in Revelation 13. Now, what we find in Revelation 13 is the little horn that Daniel prophesied about. And there's more that is going to be told to us when we get to Revelation 17. But for now, let's at least make this thought this come to this conclusion this is the antichrist this is the one who is a leader a ruler in the end the final one that comes before the establishment of god's kingdom it was prophesied all the way back in the 6th century bc and now john refers to it again So Christ is revealing to John the identity of this beast. It's the same one that Daniel the prophet foresaw. Christ reveals the identity of the beast. And as we go into the end of verse 2 through verse 4, Christ reveals the idolization of the beast. And to idolize is to worship it. And John sees how the unbelievers in the end are going to respond to the beast. The beast is going to rise in significance because verses 2 and 4 show us that the beast is given authority. Back in the book of Revelation, we'll read verses 2 and 4. Revelation 2 and 4, it says, And to it, to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. You look down at verse 4, and they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. That shows us the beast is empowered by the dragon. Three things that it says the dragon gives the beast. The dragon gives the beast his power. That is his strength to perform mighty deeds. You know, Satan is the greatest of the angels. 
most powerful until the time that God gives Michael and company the power to overthrow him. But we have to remember that Satan has great power, greater power than ours, but not greater power than God's. The dragon is not only going to give the beast power, but he's going to give the beast his throne. That is his position over the whole world. We know that Satan is the god of this world. So he will give his position of prominence to the beast. Last, the dragon will give the beast his authority, which is to say the realm of his rule. Look down at verse 7. Authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. We've read that listing of people groups before. All the way back to chapter 7, we've read that one day a great multitude, which no one could number, will worship God from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation. And what we find here is that the Antichrist is going to receive authority over all of those people groups. That's a terrible thing. But do you think that Jesus Christ is worried about that? That he is not going to get the glory due him. He's not worried. We have to remember that the beast is characterized as one who receives. The Christ throughout this book has been characterized as the one who gives. Now think about that. Which one is greater, the giver or the one who receives? Obviously the one who gives. And Christ is the one who, especially in chapters 2 and 3, is the one who gives. And that is because Christ is greater. Despite that fact, Satan is going to raise his champion in an epic contest. And Satan's efforts aren't going to be foiled at that point. We read in verses 3 and 4 that the beast is going to receive adoration. He's going to be adored for who he is. And there's going to be an event in his life that propels him into a significant place, into prominence. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Now we got to figure under, we need to understand what this is talking about. You see that the word mortal shows up twice in this verse in the English Standard Version. But it's the word for death. Some of your translations read more literally, he was wounded to death or slain to death. The beast appears just as the lamb appeared in Revelation 5. Remember that John turned and saw the lamb who was slain. It's the same word here. It's this Antichrist who was slain to death. What it seems to show us is that the beast will be assassinated. But then we learn, and even from the rest of the passage, we learn more about this event in his life. Look at down at verse 14. It talks about his wound, but then we find out the weapon that causes it and a bit of his life there. At the end of verse 14, it says, telling them to make an image for the beast. Then it describes him, the beast that was wounded by the sword. There's the instrument by which he was slain to death. And then it goes on to say, and yet lived. Or more literally, you would say it was the one who has come to life. It's the same description that comes up in chapter 2, verse 8, that describes Jesus Christ. So the beast who was assassinated was also resurrected. 
So there's a reason we call him the Antichrist. Don't you see how they mirror one another? They were slain. They came to life. And the significance of this is the, how the people respond to it. Look at the end of verse 3. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. That's the same word that's used in the ministry of Jesus Christ when he performed miracles. The crowds marveled at what he did, and they followed him. So these people will follow the beast. But this is a great difference between the Antichrist and between Christ because it says in verse 4 that the beast is worshipped by the whole earth. They worshipped the dragon for he had given authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast. Jesus Christ rose from the dead but only a small number of people worshipped him. That's why Christ had to give the great commission to his disciples and give it to us so that more people would come and worship God as Savior and Lord. That's what, that is what needs to happen because people don't worship Christ as they ought to. As we read here, the whole earth, except for believers, are going to worship the beast. So we look at that and we think, that's backwards. It's not supposed to be like that. But this is the Antichrist who receives the praise that is due to Jesus Christ. Why are they going to do this? Because the whole earth will believe that he, the Antichrist, is the greatest. Look at what they say at the end of verse 4. Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the answer in their minds is that no one is like the beast. No one can fight against the beast and defeat him. You see, humanity one day is going to be so deceived that they won't even consider the true Christ to be a match for the Antichrist. Now, you remember when we got through Revelation chapter 6 that I talked about the people of the world speaking. And I said at the time that was the only thing they were allowed to say during Act 2, chapters 4 through 16. That's actually not true because of what's written here. They get two speaking parts. They say something at the end of chapter 6. They say something here in chapter 13, verse 4. But it really helps us, I think, to compare what God chooses to record, the people of earth saying in the end. Chapter 13, verse 4, they will say, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? In chapter 6, 16 and 17, they'll say, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Both are questions that call for answers. I think the sad reality is that people have a wrong view of Jesus Christ, and they have a wrong view of what they idolize. The reality is that Christ is more significant, and that the things that dazzle us are less significant. And what we must not do at this point as readers of this event happening one day in the end times is think, that's so sad about those people in the end. I pity them. They're just so deceived. I'm glad I'm not ever deceived like that. We must not think of that because of what Christ said to the churches in the letters. We go back to those chief sins that Jesus addressed in the churches and we We remember, well, he addressed the sins of immorality and idolatry. And it was the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira who were charged with idolatry. 
They were supposed to repent of that. So now Jesus is here revealing how people one day, all the world, save believers, are going to respond to this beast by worshiping him. And of course, their end is going to be destruction. So what Jesus does in forecasting what will happen to those who worship something they ought not worship, he then warns his people, you can't do that either now. He warns his churches, it's not okay to profess faith, but then to trust in a president or to trust in a paycheck. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, what we need to realize that apart from the grace of God, we would be wholeheartedly given to idolizing things of no value, just like these people will idolize the beast, the Antichrist. So we have to examine our affections today and consider, do we truly trust the Lord? Or are we relying on something else? That's what Christ called the churches of Asia Minor to consider. That's what we have to consider today. So as we close, I want to set this back in the overarching framework of the text. In sports, teams try to gain an advantage. They study their opponents like Michael Jordan studied the person who would guard him because he wanted to have an edge over him. And to say it bluntly and plainly, God already has the edge over his opponents. He knows the future. He knows what Satan will do. He knows whom Satan will utilize. He knows how successful he will be. And the fact that he tells us beforehand all that will happen needs to encourage us. He reveals the future Antichrist. Just as he is able to reveal to the church of Smyrna what they're going to face. Because Jesus doesn't just tell the church in the end what they're going to face. He tells the church today what they're going to face. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of of life. Sometimes we think if the Lord knows about what's going to happen, he ought to get rid of it and make all of our days easy. But that's not what he chooses to do. What he chooses to do is to allow certain things, knowing that he'll bring about his plan, knowing that he will make sure to bring us to himself. So brothers and sisters in the Lord, Learning what will happen doesn't keep God's people from pain, but it should keep us from being panicked. We may still be fearful, but we should not be frantic because God has revealed what is going to come. Lord, thank you for your grace to us in letting us know some of the things that will come. Indeed, These days that will come are going to be incredibly dark, days like have never been and will never be again. But even those days aren't meant to be of such a nature that we fret and that we give up because there's no hope. There is hope. You know what will happen, and you know how your plan and purposes are going to be accomplished even with those things that are to come. So, Lord, as we face difficulty from day to day, 
and sometimes things that greatly disturb us and displease us, help us to realize that you're not worried. You're not panicked. And we ought not be panicked either. We ought to give ourselves to you, rely on you, and check ourselves to discern if we're trusting in the wrong thing. Help us with that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.